Thank you for your service. We appreciate it so very much. We are in part six of our sermon series, I believe. And uh, today we're going to be talking about balance. You know, balance, and I'll explain it a little bit more in detail here in a minute, but I believe balance is one of the greatest needs that we as Christians have. You know, it's easy for us to get off balance and fall in the process. And so I want to talk to you this morning about balance that will keep you from falling. We are in Philippians chapter number 2, and uh, we're going to read here in just a moment from verse 12 through verse 18, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm poured out to be as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should always, excuse me, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you for your word, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. And thank you for people that are, are working daily, Lord, to allow you to shine through them as lights in a dark world. Be with us this morning as we minister your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever known someone who lived their life in such a way that you wanted to pattern your life after theirs? Uh, and I'm not just talking about Jesus. Obviously, you know that whenever your question is asked in church, 67% of the time the answer is Jesus, but that's not... That's not necessarily the answer I'm looking for here. Real life people, perhaps in your lifetime or perhaps in history books, or that, that have lived their lives in such a way that you say, man, I wish, I wish my life looked like theirs. Could be a friend, could be a relative, maybe one who's passed on, hero whose biography has inspired you. Could be, I suppose, even a fictional character. But there are some whose, whose lives we seek to pattern after that can become so significant to us that we become frustrated in our own trying to be like they are. So rather than being motivated by pursuing their lifestyle, it's easy for us to find ourselves frustrated in not doing as well as they are at living. Years ago, I read an article in Newsweek magazine that was entitled, Advice to a Bored Young Man. It was written about a man whose life we would all do well to pattern ours after, at least in terms of his motivation to excellence. His name, you'll recognize, it is Benjamin Franklin. 
The article read like this, and I'm just going to read it to you so you can get the full idea. But the article starts out with kind of a strange statement. It says, died age 20, buried age 60. That's the sad epitaph of too many Americans. Mummification sets in on too many young men at an age when they should be ripping the world wide open. For example, many people reading this article are doing so with the aid of bifocals. Invented by Benjamin Franklin at the age of 79. The presses that printed this page, the article said, were powered by electricity. One of the first harnessers of electricity, Benjamin Franklin at age 40. Some reading this live on the campus of one of the Ivy League universities, the founder of those universities, Benjamin Franklin at age 45. Others may be reading it in a library. Who founded the first library in America? Benjamin Franklin, age 25. Some got the cop, their copy of this magazine through the U.S. mail, which came from a post office. Its founder, Benjamin Franklin, age, excuse me, age 31. Now, think about fire. Who started the first fire department, invented the lightning rod, designed a heating stove that's still in use today? Benjamin Franklin, ages 31, 43, and 36. Wit, conversationalist, economist, philosopher, diplomat, found a favorite of the capitals of Europe. He was a journalist, a printer, a publisher, a linguist. He spoke and wrote five languages. Advocate of paratroopers from hot air balloons a century before the airplane was invented. All of this until age 84, and he had two years of formal schooling. It's a good bet that every one of us in this room today, the article goes, or I'm adding this, have more sheer knowledge than Franklin ever had when he was our age. Perhaps you think there's no use of trying to think of anything new, that everything's been done that's going to be done. You're wrong. The simple America of Ben Franklin's day didn't begin to need the answers that we need in America today, so go do something about it. And the article ends with this admonition. Tear out this page and read it on your 84th birthday. I love that. Now, imagine reading those words and viewing those words through the eyes of a tired young mother of three or four small children. A mother who does good just to get dressed every morning and make herself presentable to the world. Or maybe view it through the eyes of a young father who has those same three or four little ones just trying to get through monthly living expenses and making sure that there's more money than there is month. You know, when we read things like that and hear about people like Benjamin Franklin, I, you know, I, I look at it through my eyes and I think, man, I, how did he do that? Especially back in the 18th century when he lived. You know, he, I, I couldn't hope to live up to Benjamin Franklin's accomplishments if I lived three lifetimes. But just like almost every one of us here, I'm, I'm sure, we have a schedule to follow, and that doesn't leave us with much time left to try to invent something. <laughs> I, I look around the world, and, 
And I see all these great examples of men and women whose lives I would love to emulate. And the problem is I I don't want to look too closely at them because I get frustrated more often than I get motivated. I guess I share the same sentiments as another great author, at least one that I would like to write as well as he did. His name was Mark Twain. He wrote and said this, Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. (laughs) So finding ourselves surrounded with great examples of exemplary people, how do we find a way to pattern our life? You know, I got thinking about that question a couple of weeks ago as I was preparing this message, actually redoing this message from an old sermon series that I did 25 years ago, and, and I came up with several answers, several of which were new to, the, to, to me because things that, how many of you figured out now that things have changed in the last 25 years? Um, I, but I, as I was thinking about answers to how do we pattern our lives after someone, I came up with two examples that won't work and only one that will. The first one that I thought of is we could fake it. Um, How can that happen? Well, it's easy to find people that value image or entertainment more than content. Um, Would you like some proof of that? We had an example just this last, I guess it was February or March. How many of you have ever heard of Trevor Noah? Trevor Noah has a a TV program. Uh, He's from South Africa, but his TV show is called The Daily Show. And at the most recent Oscars uh, that were held either, like I said, in February or March, uh, Trevor Noah was asked to introduce the Beck's Picture nominee. The picture that he was introducing was the movie, I didn't see it, probably don't care to see it, it was called Black Panther. And he gave a speech about how influential that movie was, but he saved his best prank of the night for his fellow South Africans that were watching that show at home. Here's what happened. He said, growing up as a young boy in Wakanda, I'd see King T'Challa flying over our village, and he would remind me of a great Zosha phrase. That's, that's the tribe he came from, Zosha phrase, which means, here's what uh, he would be reminded of. In times like these, we are stronger when we fight together than when we try to fight apart. Now, that's a really great thought that he supposedly translated for that audience in Zosha. But the real translation of what he said in the South African language was much different. He said after the show was over and his agent confirmed it, that what he really said was, white people don't know I'm lying. (laughs) He faked it. Those of you of my generation, you'll remember a a group, two young men by the name of Millie Vanilli. How many of you have ever heard of Millie Vanilli? They became one of the most popular acts of their generation, sold millions of records. Their success, however, quickly faded when they confessed that they actually did not sing any of the vocals that they'd won awards for. They won a Grammy Award for being the best new artist of 1990 but ended up giving that Grammy back when it was discovered that they were lip-syncing the words. Someone else had done the singing for them, 
And technology had made it look like they were the ones that were actually singing. And no one knew it until a computer glitch during one of their performances revealed their dishonesty. Now, another popular technique, in addition to faking it, another popular technique of emulating someone else's success or lifestyle is by trying to hurry it up. You know, more and more people today want more and more earlier and earlier. They don't want to wait. They don't want to experience the pain of, uh, of, of training or paying the price of learning. They just want it all, and, and they want it all now. If they can just go through the motions, if they can act like someone else acts or sound like someone else sounds or, or have a ministry like someone else has, that's sufficient enough to make them look like they've arrived. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not going to go there. I had a funny story to tell you, but it's really probably not significant at this point. See me in the foyer afterwards and I'll tell you about it. I... I Reminded of a popular pianist of my generation, probably some of you have heard of Liberace. Any of you remember Liberace? Uh, he would sit at a piano and he would play a song that you couldn't recognize because he was making runs up and down the keyboard, uh, filling in spaces in the melody. Uh, he was, I'm, I'm going to give it to him, he was probably a very good pianist. But what does it matter if you can play the piano, but no one can recognize what you're playing? For certain, no one could sing along with any of Liberace's playing because he did so much of the frill stuff. Uh, Doug, I don't know how that's done, but then I don't even know how to play a scale on the piano. So, uh, But anyway, that brings me to the only technique that will work. And that is, you might have guessed it, patterning one's life after Jesus. You see, what is true of all any other example or any other person that we might want to pattern our life after, what is true about them is not true about Jesus. And it's this. All of those other examples, whether they're a president or a great stateswoman or a statesman, an inventor, a writer, athlete, whatever they may be, they may inspire, but they can't empower. Jesus can empower us to be like him. An old song says, live for Jesus a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do. If we're not faking it, we're not trying to hurry it, are we striving to please Jesus? Well, see, the problem with striving to please Jesus, the real truth is, at least for me, is that We strive to do our very best, but there are times that our striving leaves us exhausted. So that's why we need the power, the empowerment of someone else who has the ability to make happen what we desire to happen in our lives. And Jesus is the only one that can do that. Other examples, as I said, may motivate us, but they cannot give us their abilities. There's nothing about Benjamin Franklin that remains that can make any of us the kind of inventor that he was. But when it comes to Jesus, it's different. He tells us that if we want to live his life, he will give us the power to make it happen. How many of you this morning want to please Jesus? Listen to this. It's found... In John chapter 14, verses 26 through 27, Jesus tells us how we can please him. 
The helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring it to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's given us the empowerment. We don't need to worry about all the striving to to make it happen in our own strength. Jesus has said, I am going to send to you my comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will live in you. And I'm going to paraphrase here the, the, the truth of the teaching. When his spirit lives in us, it will enable us to have our salvation work itself out. Outwardly, maybe, would be a better th- word for you to understand. How, how, <laughs> you know, I'm just being real this morning, folks. How many of you would join me in saying that sometimes, are you ready for this? It's hard to live like you're saved. Come on now. I'm not the only one. It's hard. Well, let me just say it this way. This will put the this will make you be a little bit more transparent. How many of you found from time to time it's hard to live like Jesus? There we go. There we go. It is. And, and there are times when I, I feel exactly like Paul felt in Romans chapter number seven. He said, The things that I want to do, I find myself not doing. And the things I find myself not wanting to do, I find myself doing them. Anybody else? But when you get to the end of that chapter, he says, who can save me from this? And he said, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We have Jesus. Amen? Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I find that tremendously encouraging because I failed much more I've succeeded in living out what I thought were my dreams. But the Holy Spirit is present to help me live out the purpose for which God created me. i, I got to make a couple of confessions to you this morning. I didn't grow up wanting to be a pastor. I didn't grow up, not wanting, I didn't grow up wanting to be a preacher. I didn't grow up with liberal Kansas on my bucket list. Okay? But evidently, that was part of the purpose for which God created me. Now, even though those things weren't at the top of my bucket list, God enabled me through His power to become the person that He wanted me to be rather than the person I wanted me to be. I spoke last week about how we all experience selfishness from time to time. Now, let me, just in case you've forgotten that, let me just read something to you. From verses 3 and 4 of this same chapter, number 2, it's talking about Jesus, and it says, Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. You know, I moan and groan my way through those words sometimes. 
But then I realized that Jesus, in spite of being spat upon, slapped, cursed, mocked, and having spikes driven through his hands and feet, was able to consider others as being more important than himself. Jesus. And just being transparent, I have difficulty with that, as I'm guessing most of us do, considering the interests of others as being more important than our own. I can strive, I can work at it, I can travail at it, and all of that still won't make me like Christ. So I, we, need his help. And the good news is that his help is available. And not only that, but he helps us keep things in balance that on our own we can't do. It's about his strength. It's not about my lack of courage. So what are these things then that need to be kept in balance so that I don't fall over, so that we don't fall over, and which can only take place on a regular basis through the enablement of Jesus and his Holy Spirit living in us? Let's go back to verses 12 and 13. We read them earlier. Our purpose, first of all, must be balanced with power. Now let me explain this. We're told in verse number 12... To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then you go down to the next verse and it says, It is God who works in you. Now, is that a contradiction? Well, contrary to what a lot of people think, it isn't. The reason that some people think it is is due to the fact that they only see one side and not both. Let me explain. Paul is command, not commanding these Philippian believers to whom he's writing this letter to. He's not commanding them to be saved because they're already saved. Remember chapter 1, verse number 6. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. They're already saved. So he's not commanding them to be saved. Uh, the work of sanctification has begun in them and will continue until it's completed in them. Notice that Paul did not say, work toward your salvation or work for your salvation. He said, work out your salvation. Now, let me explain that to you. Think about a musician. A musician is one who sits in front of a music stand with a musical score on it. A score composed by a genius who puts notes on a page and mixes it with rhythm and style. In other words, he composes it. But it's meaningless unless it's played or sung by the musician. When I go to a doctor, just going to the doctor doesn't make me well. The doctor, through his or her training and skill, diagnoses that I have a certain illness that will require a certain medication in order for me to get over it. And the doctor will then write out what looks like chicken scratching on a paper. Somebody knows what it says. It's a prescription. I take it to the pharmacy. I didn't write it, but it's up to me to take it to the pharmacy to have it filled and then to carry out the instructions that the pharmacist gives me for taking the medication. If I fail to do all of that, the chances are I'm not going to get better. And all of the doctor's work will have been done in vain. One last example that happens to be my personal favorite 
Suppose I'm the quarterback of a football team. The game is tied. My team has the ball on the opponent's 10-yard line. The game is tied, and there are only 10 seconds left in the game. The problem is my team's kicker has broken his leg earlier in the game. So kicking a field goal is not an option. My coach then sends in a play for me, the quarterback, to run. I didn't create the play. I didn't design the play. I've only received the play from the coach. And now me, along with the rest of the team, have to execute this play in order for us to score. The coach is helpless without the team. The salvation that God has provided for us, he's given us the, what it takes to be saved. But he's given it to us for a purpose to work it out in our life. For example, it, it, the coach is helpless without the team. And if we win that game, it will be because we have executed the play that the coach sent us. And we scored. Now that's what this passage, I think, is all about. We've been given salvation, and now it is our job to work it out. It's our job to carry out the responsibilities that the great physician has prescribed for us. Notice that there's some discomfort involved. We do it, Paul says, with fear and trembling. You can't hurry it up. You can't take any shortcuts. It's done through fear, trembling, trusting, respecting, and waiting on God through his presence. Verse 13, as we said earlier, said it is God who is working in you. Let him help you work it out. You know what I believe? This really impacted me when I thought of this a couple weeks ago. I believe that if we could see what God is doing in each, of our, in each of our lives, whether we're aware of it or whether we're not, it would literally take our breath away. God is working on us, friends. My, my girls used to sing a song in church when they were little. It was called, He's Still Working on Me. You know, if we could see what God is really doing in us, it would take our breath away. It is God who is doing the striving. It is God who is at work. It is God who is empowering. It is the Spirit of Jesus who is lingering in us to make us the kind of person that He is. Benjamin Franklin couldn't do that. Notice also that it's for God's purposes, not ours. We all too often want our purpose, our comfort, our pleasure, rather than God's. And that brings us to verses 14 through 16. And here Paul speaks about the attitude balanced with action. Now, just in case some of you may have torn verse 14 out of your Bible when we read it earlier, maybe I need to read it again. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. I was trying to think, some of you may know this, I couldn't think of it 
a couple of days ago and I haven't thought of it yet. There, there's words that sound like what they mean. What are those called? Anybody? Words that sound like exactly what they mean. There's a term for it. Doesn't matter. The Greek word used here for grumbling and complaining is one of those words. It's called gogutso. Gogutso. And, and what it means is a low-toned, discontented muttering. That to me is a fancy way of saying grumbling. Paul is not talking about public statements here. He's referring to those of us that grumble and grovel. Nobody may even know it. We're gradually grumbling about something. We don't like this. We don't like that. It was too hot in church. It was too cold in church. Didn't like songs I sang in church. Didn't like the preacher. Didn't like the pants he was wearing. I said that very intentionally. I felt like a pumpkin this morning when I got dressed. Gogutso. A British novelist by the name of J.B. Priestley once described himself in this way, and I think it fits here. He says, and I quote, I've always been a grumbler. I was designed for the part. I have a sagging face, a weighty underlip, a grumbling resonant voice. Money could not buy a better grumbler than I. <laughs> have you noticed that you can spot grumblers? Have, have you noticed that? You can spot grumblers because they look like grumblers. If you drive down, <laughs> we were in Dallas this week. All of you know how traffic is in, in Dallas. Notice people as they're driving down the freeway, especially if it happens to be during a Monday morning rush hour. Do you know what happens? Every face in every car is grumbling about the fact that their weekly plans have been interrupted by work. <laughs> it's Monday. Where did the weekend go? Now, this may not be deeply theological what I'm getting ready to share with you, but I believe it's true. Do you know what happens when we grumble? We poison the mind of the one we're grumbling to if we're grumbling to somebody, but we also poison ourselves. I have proof of it. Brenda, I'm just going to share our example, okay? Brenda and I have this frequent discussion, particularly around the holidays, when we know all of our family is going to be coming in, okay? Um, because I, almost every holiday where we have family in, at some point during that day or those days, Brenda and the rest of them are going to want to play a game that involves luck. And, and, and <laughs> let me just say to you, I don't like games that involve luck. And so she and the rest of them say, we want to play a game. And I know that it's a game that involves luck. So what do I do? I start grumbling. Now, I don't want to play that. I don't want to play that. I, I, I like games that test your mind. Now, Brenda will tell you that what I'm calling luck, she calls skill. But I start grumbling, and, it, and it, after I grumble long enough, Brenda will say something along these lines. 
Do you realize that every time I want to play a game, you start grumbling? You start griping? And if it happens to be one of those luck games, particularly the ones that involve dice, I'm scared she's going to throw one at me because I've poisoned her mind with my grumbling. Right? And I've, I've doused the entire festive atmosphere of the holiday because I'm griping about something that I don't want to do. Now, I know none of the rest of you do that. I'm just telling you that grumbling poisons our minds. Abraham Lincoln once said that when he's in preparation for a situation in which he has to counsel and reason with someone with whom he is in the middle of a dispute with, He says, and I quote, I spend one-third of my time deciding what I want to say and two-thirds of my time on what the other person is going to say. Now, I, I have to believe that if we would all just take that same approach, most of our disputes would stop. Think about it. It's a matter of attitude. By doing everything, as Paul says, without grumbling or complaining, we prove ourselves to be different in the midst of a world where everybody's grumbling and complaining. A good attitude does not have to be shouted out. Come on now. A good attitude does not have to be shouted out. It stands out wherever it's needed. I just jotted this in my margin this morning. Which of us who are parents have not figured out by now that when we have a bad attitude, our kids naturally gravitate towards someone with a better one? Amen? And it's not just kids. If you're around someone continually that has a bad attitude, you want to find someone that has a better one to hang out with. Let me just quickly give you four differences between believers in Jesus and those who are non-believers in the world from verses 14 through 16. One, believers live a life of purity that is undeniable and unescapable. Secondly, believers are above reproach and free of filth. Thirdly, believers model untainted integrity. And four, believers are shining lights luminaries that don't have to talk in order to shine. Boy, I like that. Stars don't talk. They just shine. As a believer in Jesus, every one of us ought to be the talk of the town, the contagious element in our office place, The contagious element at school. The greatest witness, friends, is the magnetic force of a life lived above reproach. You see, the light that we have here on earth, if you step outside this morning, the earth isn't generating its own light. That light is, is generated or borrowed, if you will, from a star that we call the sun. Only stars generate light, and yet we are charged by Jesus to give light to the world while we're here on earth. You are the light of the world. A city set up on a hill. 
God's plan, friends, has never been to isolate ourselves behind some monastery walls like a monk and chant Scripture. God's plan is to put us into the midst of the darkness of the world. We're not to go into spiritual isolation in order to set ourselves apart from the world. We are a part of the world, but the Jesus that we serve has overcome the world. And we too are overcomers because his spirit lives in us and is working our salvation out with fear and trembling. Are you with me? You know, as much as we might Admire discipline like those of the monks that are, are silent and, and, and just hide themselves in caves and, and, and chant over and over uh, the word. As, as much discipline as that would require, that's not God's plan for most of us. Instead, he's placed a smack dab in the middle of an ungodly world, and he is saying to us, rather than isolating you, I'm going to insulate you. Be different. Because of your attitudes, because of your actions, you will appear as lights, shining stars in a dark and ungodly world. And then we move to verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. Those verses speak of seriousness balanced with joy. I believe that the Apostle Paul was haunted by the thought of his life being a waste. Why do I think that? Because if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 27, there he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching I find myself should be disqualified. Paul wanted to be authentic. He didn't want to waste his life with empty effort. And I believe that he's telling us in this passage, I may, I may never get out of this imprisonment that I'm in. I may die here in this dungeon. My, my life may be poured out as, a, and as, appeasement to the, as an appeasement to the gods by those who believe in them in order to gain their favor. But he says, even if that is the case, I'm going to share my joy with you. And then he adds this. I also encourage you to share that joy with me. You see, this is way, Paul's way of balancing out the seriousness of life with a plea for joy. That's what this letter is about. Joy. You know, when I, even as I say that, it, 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 it almost brings a smile to my face because you can't read these four chapters of this letter without smiling. Here is Paul in the, what was probably the worst circumstances of his life. And he says, I'm going to share with you how joyful I am. And then he says, and I encourage you to share your joy as well. How many of you have some tough circumstances in your life? Can you find joy in the midst of them? Sure you can. 
You know why? Because Jesus lives in you. Those things that you're afflicted with, those things that, those circumstances, they're temporary. But Jesus in you is going to be with you forever. And that should give you a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I've said it before, I'll say it again. One of the things that I admire more than anything else is an elderly Christian who can still smile and have a sense of humor in spite of aging, in spite of arthritis, or any other troubling circumstance. I've heard, I've heard people in their 80s and 90s, I think I said this last week, I'll say it again. I've heard people in their 80s and 90s who have lived for Jesus 60, 70, 80 years. And you ask them and they'll tell you this, it's the best thing I've ever done. It's the best thing I've ever done is live for Jesus. I've not given up anything for living for Jesus that he hasn't more than supplied something else better. And they'll say it with a smile on their face. Having said all that, I'm reminded that we still have a problem, though. And that problem we talked about last week is called self. You see, my mind, my mind wants all of these things that I've just shared with you to be true about me. But my problem is that I'm shackled inside this skin-covered bag of bones that doesn't want Jesus or anyone else to be in control of me, but to be totally self-governed. There's a part of me that says, there are times I'd rather groan and grumble and argue and have my way. I, I don't want to be joyful all the time. I'm entitled to not have joy today. I don't want my light to feel like it has to shine on other men. I'd rather their light shine on me. I don't want to have to give up anything. I want to get as much as I can. I want to make out like a bandit in this life. Well, there are two ways, friends, and I'm closing with this, to let Jesus shine through us. See if I turn my watch back yet. I did. There are two ways to let Jesus shine through us and ourself to be subjected to him. First of all, control the urge of self to take credit. The greatest basketball coach that ever lived, in my opinion, was John Wooden. I don't know how many of you have ever read John Wooden's book. But in his book, he gives probably the, one of the greatest quotes I've ever read in my life. He says this, Talent is God-given, be humble. Fame is man-given, be thankful. Conceit is self-given, be careful. The second way to allow Jesus to shine through you is to conquer the tendency of self to take charge. Here's why I say that. I know this is true for me, and I'm guessing, I, no, I'm not guessing, I know it's true for you too. We don't need just a little bit of Jesus. We need all of Jesus we can get. Several years ago, I was reading the story of Martin Luther. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. 
Martin Luther penned his 99 tenets of reformation on the door of the Catholic Church. And as a result of him pinning those 99 points of reformation on that door, Luther was then brought before the Pope with all of his cardinals and bishops, gathering at one of the most significant religious gatherings ever put together. And someone asked Luther, because the things that he pinned on that door kind of debunked everything that he'd been taught as a good Catholic boy, okay? And so when they had this gathering, Luther knew that he was going to be brought before the Pope, all the cardinals and all the bishops. And someone asked him if he feared standing before all of those nobles of the Catholic Church. And his reply is striking. He said, greater than, all of the pope, greater than the Pope and all of his cardinals, I fear the great Pope, self. You know what? That's a true statement. Because I find in my life, the thing that gets in the way more than anything else of me being like Jesus is me being like Terry. <laughs> Amen? That's why Paul told us, I have to crucify self daily. I, I, I have to put self to death. I mean, think about it for a moment, folks. This same Apostle Paul, who's now imprisoned in Rome, he was once destined for the top seat in the Jewish religious body, the Sanhedrin. Why? Because he'd been educated in the finest schools of the finest Jewish teachers. His teacher was a man named Gamaliel. He was born at the tribe of Benjamin. He had all of these, this list of qualifications that had set him up to become this most influential of all Jewish religious leaders. And then the road to Damascus happened. And he encountered Jesus. And he gave up all of that career, all of that future success for the sake of following Jesus. And then he, in another place, he got very specific about what he considered all of those accolades and all of those qualifications. He said, I now consider them dung. I don't need to get more self-explanatory than that. They mean nothing. But let me just say this. Now, having heard all of that, can you see why? Here, here's Paul sitting in prison. Do you suppose the thought ever comes to his mind, man, if I'd have just not done this and had kept on that road to being the top seat in the Sanhedrin, I wouldn't have to be enduring all of this. Man, I had... I was on my way. I had met all the qualifications. And look at me now. Here I sit. That's why I had to crucify self daily. I, I personally believe that if Paul's thorn in the flesh that he describes in Scripture was not a physical thorn, if it wasn't a physical thorn, that's what it was. 
knowing what could have been instead of what now is. And he had to deal with that daily. This morning, I encourage each of you here to shine like stars. If you're going to pattern your life after someone, make it someone who can give you the power to pull it off. And that person is Jesus. Worship team, would you come please? Lord Jesus, you, you know, Lord, that there are times in my life when things get so out of balance. I, I feel real strongly one way and not so strongly another way, and so I find myself leaning and gravitating toward that something that usually involves what I want. Lord, I remember those early years of pastoring. Thinking to myself, man, if I'm going to do this, I want to, I don't want to just do it. I want to be the next Billy Graham. <laughs> and as I've said before, spending those hours waiting by the telephone for the call, the call that never came because you had a different plan and a different purpose. You had a different ministry for me than you had for Billy Graham. Or maybe it was later on in life, Lord, when, I'm, when I would go to those denominational meetings and I would see these pastors who I didn't think were a whole lot smarter or a whole lot more gifted than I am. And they're pastoring mega churches with thousands of people. Missions programs, Lord, that are giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to promote the gospel. Buildings, multi-million dollar buildings and campuses that, of the church that they're pastoring. As I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, maybe someday, maybe someday that'll be me. You see, God, what I didn't understand was that's not the plan you had for me. The plan that you had for me and Brenda in ministry was to go to little churches like Sunlight Community Church. Shady Grove Church. Assembly of God in Salina. Congregations who had been divided and whose churches had gone through horrible splits. That they, were, they were fractured and they were struggling and probably if not for the fact that you called us there very well the day could have come when those doors would have closed. And then, Lord, you, you, through your grace and the ministry gifts that you had given to Brenda and I, we, we were able to bring healing 
to those congregations and, and get them to growing again and get them financially stable and, and make them influential in the community again. And then, God, you'd call us to the next little struggling church. God, you know how tough that was for us. Especially when one who, like me, who had aspirations of doing something much more significant, much more glaringly apparent to everyone else. But Lord, you had to humble me through that. You had to humble me and even recent churches like Central Assembly and Independence and Family Worship Center in El Dorado. Churches just struggling with different things financially and everything else, God, that held them back from doing the work that they were placed in those communities to do. You call us there, God. and Lord, it was such a blow to my ego. Then you brought us to liberal. Not a fractured congregation. Not a financially struggling church. Not as big a church as I'd like for it to be. But God, you finally got it through my head. This is what I called you to, Terry. This is what I called you to. And you're not going to answer when you stand before me for why you didn't reach the hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands. You're going to answer for my question, have you been faithful to do what I called you to do? And Lord, I want to be able to say to you, with my head held high, I want to be able to say to you, yes, God. I've done what you've asked me to do. And so, God, I, I think the experience that I've just described concerning myself probably mirrors that of several of us in the room. We haven't we haven't attained the success. We haven't attained the, the position that we thought we might in life. But God, you placed us in a place that needed illuminating and only our star could bring light to that place. That may be an office. That may be in a city, maybe a little one-dog town with only one church. But God, you've placed us there to be a light that illuminates the darkness. So dear Jesus, this morning in this invitation, I'm asking you to search each of our hearts. Are we shining? where you've placed us? Are we, as the old saying goes, blooming where we've been planted?
are we thriving instead of striving? Is our salvation being worked out as you cleanse us and sanctify us and make us more like yourself? Is that what the world's seeing or are they seeing more of us and less of you? As we contemplate that in our hearts this morning, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to to just say whatever it is you need to say to each one of us today, God. Jacob, could we sing that first song, first verse of Here I am to worship?